I recently heard a report uh, where some missionaries had taken uh, the most popular film of all time. You, you won't see it in any list of popular films, but it's the most seen film of all time, the Jesus film, uh, to some villages in East India. And it was uh, the people they took it to, it was the first time they'd ever seen a movie, uh, let alone heard about Jesus. And uh, here is the account of a uh, response of uh, a person who was there and witnessed the scene. He said, you can imagine how it would feel to see this wonderful man, Jesus, healing the sick and adored by children, promising forgiveness and eternal life and then held without trial and beaten by jeering soldiers. As the villagers watched, uh, they became unglued. They stood about and began shouting at the cruel men on the screen, demanding that this outrage stop. When nothing happened, they turned and attacked the missionary running the projector. Perhaps he was responsible for this injustice. Eventually he was forced to stop the film and explain to them that the story wasn't over yet, that there was more to come. So they settled back on the ground and held their emotions in check to see what happened next. But then they came to the crucifixion. Well again the people couldn't hold back. They began weeping and wailing with such loud grief that once again the film had to be stopped. The missionary again tried to calm the people down and explain that the story is not over yet, there's more to come. Eventually they did compose themselves and sat down to see what happened next. Then came the resurrection. Well, pandemonium broke out this time, but for completely different reasons. The gathering had spontaneously erupted into a party. The noise now of the jubilation was so deafening that nothing else could be heard. The people were dancing and clapping each other on the back and saying, Christ is risen The missionary again had to shut off the projector but this time he didn't tell them to calm down because everything that was supposed to happen in the story and in their lives was happening before his eyes. Tell me, as you hear the news of the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, do you react like that? Do you believe like that? Like nothing matters as much, like everything has changed Like when you came to believe in the truth of the gospel, the truth of the death and resurrection of this man, Jesus, that life had just begun, that this was the beginning of real life at last. Do you live like that? Well, this morning we can uh, begin a a short series in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a chapter that I think is going to push us on just those sort of questions. And a chapter that exposes for us one of the most subtle and yet most deadly dangers we face as Christians. The danger where we can be so sure of what we believe, certain enough to stand up as we did this morning as we do every week and say the words of a creed, convinced of their truth, but being unable to draw too strong a link between what we know and understand about God and what we know and understand about living in the world, the the real world, that we can know the great doctrines of the Christian faith but feel that they are as Teflon when placed next to uh, work tomorrow or yet another sleepless night with a newborn or, or whatever pressures we face or even our sexuality or my finances, whatever you care to think of. That we may hear a sermon on, say, something like the Trinity to hear that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit and feel like we've learnt something but there's this residual feeling that it doesn't really affect my life, at least not in the real world. 
In the lead up to Easter, I want to let 1 Corinthians 15 push us on this to help us join the dots between one of the big pieces of the Christian faith, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and our bodily daily lives. So let's do that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 together and it's on page 1155 if you've shut it. Page 1155. And we're going to zoom in uh, to start with on 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4. A simple line. Speaking of Jesus, it says that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now for many of us, myself included, I can say that line in a creed as we do regularly, but saying it out loud that Jesus rose from the dead has no more impact on my life than reading a shopping list. It's as if I could say Jesus died, Jesus rose six eggs and a pint of milk and they're all as relevant as each other. It just doesn't get through. It doesn't connect to my heart. Beyond sparking maybe a few synapses in my brain, it's all too easily a theoretical belief. Well, together, let's have 1 Corinthians 15 connect it for us. And let me start by asking the question that I think is at the heart of this chapter. There we have our statement in verse 4 that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let me ask you this question. How can you tell if you actually believe that? If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? How can you tell? In one sense the answer is simple, isn't it? I'll say it. I'll confess it. If asked or encouraged, I will say, yes, I firmly believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But then you can say you believe in the resurrection and yet deny the bodily resurrection, can't you? An esteemed uh, bishop in the Anglican Church in Australia when asked, would it make any difference to your faith if the bones of Jesus were dug up? He said, not at all, of course not, because Jesus is risen in my heart. And so we can spiritualise it, that, that resurrection is just an idea, it's almost a metaphor. And to be honest, as Paul is writing this letter, that's the issue he's confronting with the Corinthians. They've spiritualised everything and for them spirituality has nothing to do with bodies and things like that. They've so swallowed the the Greek culture around them that, that they have to deny the physical resurrection of the dead. For them, God doesn't get involved in the messy world of bodies and blood and bones. Resurrection has nothing to do with bodies. It's more spiritual than that. But if we are to be genuine in our confession, we'll want to say more than that. Because to the Bible, bodies do matter. In fact, the scripture knows nothing of this body-spirit split. As far as the Bible is concerned, if Jesus' bones are unearthed, then it's game over for the Christian faith. To think you believe in the resurrection of Jesus simply by believing in some spiritual fable about him being alive in your heart is in the words of verse 2, to believe in vain. It's not a belief worth clinging to. Not a belief that will shape how you live in this body because after all, bodies don't matter. So let me ask you again. How can you tell if you actually believe Jesus rose? Where will that sort of faith show itself? Well, let me give you the two tests this chapter gives us. You will know you believe Jesus rose from the dead if you are completely sure that you will be raised from the grave. Completely sure that when you die and are laid low in the ground that you will be raised from the dead. 
And secondly, flowing from that, you'll live like you're sure. That's how you know whether you believe it or not. That's Paul's take in Corinthians 15. And I think we struggle with this because we, we, we don't connect what we know and understand about God and what we know and understand about our own lives that closely. And yet what we'll find in this chapter is what we only connect very loosely, Jesus' resurrection and our day-to-day lives is in fact completely linked. Such that Paul will say to us, the only way you can tell whether you believe and how strongly you believe Jesus rose is whether you believe and how strongly you believe you will rise from the dead. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. Paul gets to the nub of it. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Do you see the surprise of these verses? I think when we get to the question of Jesus' resurrection, we're used to equating those two things in one direction. We're used to thinking, well, yes, if Jesus didn't rise, of course I'm not going to rise. That's logical. But what Paul does is he reverses it for us and he says, look, if you're not sure of your own resurrection, then you can't be sure of Jesus either. Deny one and you deny the other. Once you say there's no resurrection of the dead, you're pulling out from its foundations the very core of your faith. And Paul says once that falls down, everything else goes with it. 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear that if Christ has not been raised or we live as if Christ has not been raised, then our past, our present and our future are irreparably changed. Have a look at verses 14 and 15. That's where he starts to spell out how our present has changed. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. It means what we're doing right now is a a complete and utter waste of time. You may as well not turn up next week. Because it's a waste of your time. I may as well not bother preparing anything for next week because it's a waste of my time. Pointless. The very ground on which I stand as a preacher, Jesus' resurrection, has crumbled. I'm wasting your time and mine. My words are empty. And more than that, you see in verse 15, he says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. You see, it's not just harmless nothing preaching all of a sudden. All of a sudden it's a horrible lie. One that offers false hope. So don't come next week, not just because it's pointless, but because it would be a lie. To encourage people to live in light of something that just might not be the case, it's a lie, says Paul. Now if my preaching is hollow, and if it's a lie... Then verse 14 says, so is your faith. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, you you can trust all you like, you can wish all you like, but Paul says there's, there's no resurrection from the dead. It is utterly unfounded and pointless. Paul goes on, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, not only is my present irreparably changed, but so is my understanding of what has happened in the past for me as a Christian. Have a look at the last few words of verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. My past stays with me, it's stuck to me. At its most basic, Christian faith is saying, I trust you, Jesus, for forgiving my sins. 
and defending me before God. I'm counting on you. As John 3.36 puts it, whoever trusts in the Son has life. But whoever doesn't trust the Son doesn't have life because he's still in his sins. That is, if, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, there is no forgiveness. Which means I stand before God with no defence and no defender. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, in face of my willful sinfulness before God, I have nothing but hell to pay. My past stays with me. I'm stuck with it. And not only is my past changed, so too is my future. Have a look at verse 18. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Now think about the difference that makes to life, real life, real relationships. If you have a friend or a loved one who dies trusting Christ and you go to their funeral, then there's nothing more to that than a goodbye party at best, is there? A human being dies and they go to the grave and that's it. Lost. Pull out the plank that says there's no resurrection of the dead, that says Jesus didn't rise and my present, my past and my future are destroyed which all leads to the obvious outcome for us as Christians that Paul points to in verse 19. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What a thought. Quite often I I hear the myth that that says being a Christian guarantees you the good life. That that if you're a Christian you'll, you'll have the good life, good health, enough wealth, prosperity, easy relationships and on and on it goes. But the Christian life outlined in the scriptures is a far richer tapestry than that, isn't it? It's a call to follow a crucified man. It's a call to live as he did. In the words of the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. And Paul shows us what such a life looks like. He literally poured out his life to bring the news of the resurrection of Jesus to the world. This was his gospel. The risks he took for it were immense. You see in verse 30 of our chapter he says, every hour of my life I face danger, every single hour. Elsewhere he explains it like this, he says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at the sea, in danger from false brothers and on and on he goes. Here is the Christian life lived by someone who is utterly convinced Jesus rose from the dead and so will he. And so his life is full of sacrifice, full of risks for the sake of others. But Paul says if the dead are not raised, if this life that I'm living of risk and sacrifice is my only one, then I'm a pitiful fool. The great obstacle to living a radically faithful life for God is the nagging doubt that the dead will not rise. That the 20, 40, 60 years or maybe even five minutes I have ahead of me in this body is all there is. Now if that doubt remains for me as a believer I'll always be in two minds, won't I? One that's with Paul as he says in Philippians 1 to live is Christ, to die is gain, win-win. 
and one that's more of the mindset of uh, 1 Corinthians 15.32 which says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The mindset that tries to squeeze as much pleasure and experiences and money and respect and glory into this life as possible. The mindset that will always be cautious with risking my life for something that may end up being a myth. And so I won't give financially in a way that will really stretch me. Where's the wisdom in that? I won't commit myself to meeting regularly with other Christians in a small group because I'm tired and work's stressful. I'll hold my career tightly. I'll obsess about how I look. I'll obsess about my health or my children or I'll compromise morally or I'll belittle colleagues or I'll flirt. Why not? This is all there is. Paul pushes hard here, don't you think? Rather than give us the easy question, the one we know the answer to, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? He gets to our problem. And he says, do you believe that when you die, you will be buried and then you will rise and then you will appear before the Lord? Do you believe that? Do you live like someone who knows that? Like someone who is utterly convinced of it? Well, knowing how easily we slip into this sort of double-minded living, Paul gives us the remedy, the thing we need to know to live a faithful life in this body. And to be honest, at first glance, his answer seems a bit disappointing because if we are to live this sort of life, uh, I guess if you're like me, you you want to know the how-to. You want to know, well, what's it going to mean tomorrow at work? What are the steps? Give me the ten habits of highly effective Christian living. But Paul knows this is our problem. We split theology and life. We don't see how they go together. He knows unless our head and heart are right, the body is going nowhere. And so what does he do? He reminds us. He goes right back to basics. Stuff we know. He reminds us of the gospel. News that we so easily take for granted. News that we so lightly apply to our lives. He says, perhaps you've forgotten. Have a look what he says in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. You heard it. You received it. This is the gospel in which you've taken your stand. And verses 3 to 8, what he does is he outlines that gospel. And for me, it's fascinating the way he does it. There's no metaphoric flourish here. There's no spiritualised language. No, he speaks of the real world in real language of real history. He really only says four things. Christ died. Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ appeared. And he says, do you see how big a difference these things make in the real world? Have a look at the first one. In verse 3 he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Really when Paul says this he is summarising the whole message of scripture. The Old Testament in a way can be summed up by the words these words about the coming of the Christ and the Gospels themselves spend the early parts of each one of them establishing that Jesus is the Christ and the latter part is dominated by the Christ's death. And so when Paul says Christ died, he is summarising the Gospels and when he says for our sins, he is summarising the whole Bible. 
Right at the very beginning of this letter that we're in, 1 Corinthians, we learn that the Jews knew this. They knew their Old Testament well, that the Christ would come. But they expected he'd be a conquering king, that if he was bloodied at all, it would be the blood of his enemies that he vanquished. So it's scandalous for the apostles to preach that the Christ was indeed bloodied. In fact, he was crucified, that he shed his own blood for his enemies. But the magnificent truth of this short sentence in verse 3 is that the death of Christ brings forgiveness of sins. My status before God is totally bound up in Jesus' death. I am permanently bound to him because of that. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. My status and his are forever bound. He died. Verse 4, he was buried. Such a simple line, isn't it? And yet it underlines the reality of his death. It's a literal death, a complete one. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? When we know it's over, when we say goodbye to a friend or a loved one and and we have the funeral, we know there's nothing more to say. And yet there is. Verse 4, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You know, we know a great deal about human power, but here is God's power writ large. This unique moment in history, the, the most amazing weekend of all time. Can you picture it? Sometime before sunset on Friday, Jesus breathes his last. A spear is thrust into his side and he dies. Day one. He's brought down off the cross and he's laid in the tomb. and That's the moment of goodbye, isn't it? That's, that's it. He's in that tomb, sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. Day two. Sometime after sunset Saturday and before the women reach the tomb early on Sunday morning, Death starts to work backwards. God raises his son back to life and he walks out of the tomb. He died, he was buried, he was raised and now he appears. The book of Acts tells us that there were some 40 days between Christ's death and his ascension, a period in which he appeared to many on many occasions. We're only given five of them here, there's lots more. But really I think Paul is listing them for us here because he's at pains to say this is no metaphoric resurrection. This is no spiritualised thing. No Christ raised in our hearts. That's junk as far as Paul is concerned. No, he was seen in Jerusalem in Galilee. He was spoken with. They touched him. They hugged him. They ate with him. Paul is restating the obvious for us here, reminding us of what we know. The Gospel. Because he knows if we're hearing it rightly, we would be joining the Indians dancing and tapping each other on the back. Because we would know it is good news indeed, news that has changed everything. And how much has it changed it? Well, let me leave you with five ways life changes. Some of the connections we we need to make between our faith and our life, where we start to see how everything works backwards. Firstly, have a look again at verse 17. If Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, then we are totally forgiven. Verse 17 is reversed. I'm not stuck in my sins anymore. Now, unless you realise how holy God is and how angry he is about sin and how sinful we are, you won't grasp how much this changes your life. 
There's no worse place to be than stuck in your sins before the Lord. And there is no better news than because of Jesus' resurrection, you are free of that. And for that to happen, two things had to occur. Jesus died, Jesus rose. Romans 4.25 captures it for us best when it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Because Jesus rose, I stand before the Lord justified, forgiven. I'm forgiven. Secondly, my faith is no longer in vain. Verse 14 works in reverse. Because he did as he promised. He said he would rise and he did. At last I have someone who is completely trustworthy. Now that's what we want in life, isn't it? Someone we can completely trust. I like to think I'm a fairly trustworthy guy. I like to think Liz, my wife, can trust me. In fact, I don't say it very often. I just assume that she trusts me. But I think she slowly worked out that if I ever use those words, trust me, it's probably a good time not to trust me. We had an experience of that last week. We had a holiday in London and uh, we got on a London bus and I, I think there was this unspoken rule between us that I knew what we were doing and uh, everything would be okay. And so we jumped on this bus. I assumed it was heading to where we wanted to go and it was sort of vaguely heading in that direction and then it took a turn this way. And we're heading, heading further and further out of London. Ten minutes pass and Liz turns around and looks at me worried. Trust me, it's, it's fine. Twenty minutes pass, we're heading further and further out of London. Trust me. Fine. Eventually the bus driver says, last stop before the depot. And it's at that point that uh, I said, perhaps don't trust me, let's, let's, let's get off. And we do let each other down, don't we, sometimes the little things and sometimes the big things where we, we, we can't trust people. But here in Jesus we have someone who can be completely relied upon. No matter what comes, we can trust him to deliver even in the face of what this chapter calls our last great enemy, death, even in the face of death, he says, trust me. And you can. We are forgiven. My faith is not in vain. And thirdly, it means the apostolic witness, the words we're reading here are true. Verse 15 is reversed. You know, we live in an era of postmodernism where, where truth is like a product where you can pick and choose what you want to believe. But Jesus' resurrection says God tells the truth. God's word tells the truth about how to live, about how to relate to each other, about what is right and wrong, about what matters, about what we're like. All of it can be trusted. I'm forgiven. My faith is not in vain. The words I read are true. And number four, how about this? This is a big one. The dead in Christ are not lost. Verse 18 works backwards. Now only if you've never been touched by death, only if you've never been afraid or or never grieved will you fail to see how big this news is because losing people matters, doesn't it? Losing friends and loved ones matters and the details matter, it's personal. We miss everything about them, Their, their laugh, their face, their eyes, their hands, the feet, the lot. Bodies, heart, soul, mind, the whole thing matters. In some ways tomorrow is an important day for me, February 25, 2008. It is exactly 10 years since my best friend died. 10 years. It's almost half his life. I miss my friend. 
and telling me that he is alive in my heart just ain't going to fly. I want more. I miss everything. Face, smile, sense of humour, mind, heart, everything. Death is no friend. In fact, as verse 26 of our chapter says, it is our last great enemy. But if you want to see how extraordinary the connecting of the dots between our theology and life really is, then try this on for size. Death works backwards. Death will die. How certain am I? As certain as Jesus rose from the dead and anyone who throws their lot in with him will rise as he did. Finally, it means I do not live in vain. Once your past is fixed, sin's forgiven. And once your future is sure that you will be raised from the dead, then what to do in the present is clear, isn't it? Your life is no longer in vain. The call to follow Jesus is worth heeding and totally and passionately. Paul knows this. That's what he's trying to convince us of in this chapter. He is no fool. His life of of radical risk-taking, of sacrificial love, it's not pitiful. It's not even extreme, to be honest. It's the most sensible, sane way to live when you know the facts. Without a passionate belief in the resurrection, we'll always slide towards wanting our pleasure now. We'll always live cautiously for him. We'll be eager to avoid difficulty and pain and discomfort and frustration. Our love will be tame. Our distinction from the world around us will be dim and our willingness to speak for him will be timid. Jesus says, if you really believe that your joy in the resurrection will make up for a thousand losses, self-denials, sacrifices, dangers, risks here in this life, if you really believe that, then you will live fearlessly for me, faithfully. You'll live sustained by the joy set before you. You will, in the words that this chapter finishes with, stand firm, letting nothing move you. You will always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labour in the Lord is never in vain. Let's pray.